Scripture today comes from Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53, you might want to turn there. Um, uh, Before I get to that, I do want to do just a little bit of introduction. Um, We've been talking in church on Sunday mornings about the cross and trying to understand the cross and what it means for us. And to do that, we've been looking at various metaphors or images that the Bible uses to try to describe the cross. I think it's important to note that the, the Bible never uses the cross itself as a metaphor. Okay, we like to say, look at the cross, we see there how much Jesus loves us, but the, the Bible does not do that with the cross. The cross is, in the Bible, a, it is a historical event, something that happened, and when that event happened, something bigger than that happened. And the Bible then tries to explore what happened there by looking at it from different metaphors or different images. Imagine looking at the cross from this angle, and then looking at the cross from this angle, and looking at the cross from this angle, and trying to understand it from different places. So we've been talking about that. We've talked about one angle being a blood sacrifice. We've talked about another angle uh, being ransom and redemption. We've looked at it from another angle and say, well, the Bible uses images of like a courtroom and legal images. But the the cross itself is never a metaphor. We just use a metaphor to try to describe uh, what's going on there. This this is important to note because the metaphors start to overlap. Okay, and we're going to do one today that helps explain the other ones that we've already done. They're also not perfect. Uh, When we try to describe the cross and we only use one metaphor, there's a reason the Bible uses a bunch of these different ones. Because whenever we just stick with one, and that's the only one we talk about, we miss out on the beauty of these other ones. Um, And of course, all metaphors break down at some point. So the the Bible writers are just trying to grasp it. What is this crazy thing going on on a cross that Jesus is dying and what does it do for us? And today we're going to talk about the idea of substitution. Substitution. This is a word, this is a more common word than some of the other words we've been using here. We substitute, right? We substitute at restaurants. Can I get potatoes, uh, I get mashed potatoes instead of fries, or fries instead of a salad? I can substitute something for something else. We have substitute teachers, right? One teacher is sick, and so another teacher goes in and takes the teacher's place. Um, we substitute in sports. Take one player out, put another player in in their place. So we understand generally what substitution is. We're now going to apply it to the cross of Jesus. And we're going to do it in an interesting place. We're going to do it in Isaiah chapter 53. And I'm going to read this and then we're going to spend our time trying to understand it a little bit better. Who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not." Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. 
And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he, is ta- he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And and he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and and he shall divide the spoil among the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah writes these words about somewhere around 700 years before Jesus comes. Isaiah, by this point in the book, has come back to Israel from being in exile. And he's trying to explore how did we go into exile and what's going to keep us from going back into exile, being taken off into another land. Isaiah's point is that only God can really fix this. Only God can really be faithful. And so he, like the other prophets, promises this Messiah, this Savior that will come from God and will lead the people, that will fix the problem of sin and iniquity that is among them. Whereas they can never be true to God, God is going to come and make it so that they can. This chapter, however, stands out among all those prophecies. Because it's one of the few places in the Old Testament where this Savior is set up as needing to suffer. This chapter is probably labeled in a lot of your Bibles as the suffering servant. That's what this is typically called. That when the Savior comes, he will have to suffer. Now, the first thing we need to note about this passage is how many of these things, written about 700 years before Jesus, Jesus fulfills in his life. Let me just list a few of them. First of all, it talks about the arm of the Lord. When we say something is handmade, it means you do it yourself, Right? But in the Old Testament, they didn't talk about handmade. They talked about like arm made. When you went to do it physically yourself, you did it with your arms. So that means God's going to physically come and do it himself. This is God become flesh. The text refers to a child that he would grow up. This is an amazing prophecy because no one expected the Messiah to be God, but come as a baby and be, be brought up text says he was really nothing to look at. He had no form or majesty, right? Isn't it interesting? We were talking about this, a few of us, when we went and saw the, the recent movie about Jesus risen, that the, the Bible has no description of what Jesus looks like. None at all. Which would lead us to believe he's probably just normal, pretty normal and boring. He's nothing special. Jesus is not Brad Pitt. He's not someone that you look at and, no, he's just a normal, average person. The text says, amazingly, think about this, 700 years ahead, that he's pierced for our transgressions. 
He uses the phrase pierced, like a nail going through a hand or being pierced in the side with a spear. He's not stoned for our transgressions, not beheaded. He's not hung. He's pierced. He's crushed. Remember Jesus being crushed under the weight of the cross as he carries it? Like a lamb going to slaughter, he didn't speak out. He struggled. He didn't struggle. If you go back and really read the trial of Jesus, what you find is Jesus has intentionally gone to Jerusalem. And the, the evidence against him is preposterous. And Pilate would really like to let him go. If Jesus had just not gone to Jerusalem or had just stood up for himself a little bit, he could have gotten off. He could have not gone to the cross. He intentionally goes to the cross, says very little in his trial. The text says he's killed with the wicked. Remember Jesus being hung next to two thieves on the cross? Then amazingly, the text says he was in death with a rich man. Everybody remember what happened to Jesus after he died? He's buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy tomb. The text says, but he shall see his offspring. Somehow his life is going to be prolonged after he dies. This text is perhaps looking forward to the resurrection of of Jesus. Now imagine that, 700 years before this, all these prophecies are going on in Isaiah's words about Jesus. It's pretty astonishing. But what is also very powerful about this text is how much it describes about the very purpose of Jesus coming to the cross. This text has a lot to say about the problems that you and I have as human beings, right? Sorrows. Sorrow is not just to be sorry for something, uh, but to be sad, to wish something different had taken place. How many of us have regrets? Sorrows, things that happened to us, things that we wish we'd done, things that we did and we are sorry about. This text uses the phrase grief. That's to be really emotionally sorrow. It's, it's from the old word to be, the old, it's an old French word really, that means to burden. How many of you felt burdened in your life? Have a weight you've had to carry? Transgressions. An act of violation or a rule or of a rule or a law. Anybody broken any rules in your life? Yeah? Iniquities, immoral or unfair behavior. Sin is used in this text to miss the mark. This sort of includes transgressions and iniquities, but also sins of omission. Those things you should have done that you didn't do. Those count in here too. We've gone away like sheep tried to do our own thing and got lost. You ever felt lost and alone in the middle of a wilderness in your life? Guilt, to be ashamed of doing wrong. Anguish, to be distressed in agony or in pain. Right? This text has this amazing set of words to describe how many of us feel about our lives or at least parts of our lives that we would like to keep hidden. But what Jesus does in this passage is he takes on our stuff. He takes on these problems, right? Passage says he's borne them. He's he's borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. The chastisement was placed upon him. The The Lord laid the iniquity of us all on him. Jesus takes that stuff from us and he throws it on his back and he carries it for us. But he goes even further. He dies. He's stricken and afflicted. He's pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. He's smitten by God. 
Now, we be careful here, right? Because we're not trying to divide the Trinity. He is God. He's intentionally choosing to take these things on. He doesn't doesn't fight. He's like a sheep going to the slaughter, and he peacefully goes and does it willingly on your behalf. Isaiah writes that it is the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief, that he's given as an offering. See, he substitutes. Everybody got the image now? He substitutes. He takes your stuff, your junk, and while your junk makes you deserve the cross, he takes it and he goes to the cross on your behalf. He substitutes himself for you. This is fundamental to all the other metaphors we've been talking about, right? In the the sacrificial system, the lamb takes your place and is sacrificed so that you don't have to be. In a ransom, somebody else pays the debt that you owe. Okay, a redeemer comes. Jesus does that. In a courtroom, we talked about last week how Jesus gives the sentence of guilty, but, but he also pays the sentence of death on our behalf. He substitutes. He trades in. And we get peace. But we get more than peace. While Christ takes all this stuff from us, he gives us something in return. We trade place. Substitution is always two ways, right? If you've got a substitute teacher, you've got a one teacher that's not in at the school right now. They're at home, and the other teacher is in their place. See, we, we get something from Christ, too. Martin Luther and John Calvin both like to call this the wonderful exchange. It's this trade that goes on between Jesus and us. For 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, for, for our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin. Okay? He made Jesus to be sin. He, did, he hadn't sinned, but he made him to be sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We get the righteousness of Jesus. We get it. In Isaiah 53, we're given peace. We're healed. We're given a portion. We're accounted as righteous. We are his offspring. We're made innocent. Jesus has this sonship with the Father, right? He is God's son. And he lets you in on that. Now you can be sons and daughters because he substitutes for you. So when God looks at you, he doesn't see you anymore. Everybody catching this? When God looks at you, he doesn't see you anymore. He sees Jesus standing in front of you. Your sins are gone. Your sins are over. Paul says that you are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Okay. Let me, let me try to bring this to life for you a little bit. Okay. To do this, I'm going to do the, uh, at risk of blasphemy, I'm going to play the part of Jesus here. All right? I want to really, I want you to grasp this. I want you to really see what I'm talking about that Jesus does for us. Okay? So, I'm Jesus. Out there in the crowd, we have several people representing all of you wearing black shirts. We have one that says griefs. One's that, one that says sin. Sin really refers to transgressions and iniquities and all of that. One that says guilt and one that says sorrows. Now, just for financial reasons, I didn't give you all shirts. Okay? But you all deserve these shirts. Because we've all done things we shouldn't have done. Especially compared to Jesus. We all deserve these shirts. And so this amazing thing happens. That Jesus comes to take that on for us. That Jesus comes, and he comes in flesh. He becomes a person. That's the first thing he does. He's got to become a person so that he can really take on all this stuff as a person. Our sin is very fleshy. It happens in our bodies. It's got to get fixed in a body. And so Jesus comes. He becomes human. 
He puts on flesh, right? But not just like a shirt. He really is flesh. And then he goes and he bears those things for us. So uh, if you're out there, you've got one of those black, one of those particular black shirts on. Take it off right now. Take, take his shirt off. I'm going to show you what Jesus does. Right out of Isaiah, he bears it, right? So Jesus comes and he takes your sin and he bears it on himself. Right? And he, and he comes. And he, what, what else we got here? Oh, we got guilt. Okay? He takes your guilt and he puts it out on himself. Right? He bears it. He carries it. And I give it to you guys in the back. <laughs> and he takes your griefs. He takes all this and bears it. He holds it. He carries it. Okay? Oops, sorrows. Okay. So, he bears all these, all this stuff that you've had. Griefs, sorrows, sin. He takes it upon himself, right? Do you know what the wages of sin is? What's the wages of sin? Death. Death. Okay? You can't be near God. You can't live forever, and you can't be close to God with all this stuff. So you know what? Everybody who wears one of these shirts deserves to go to the cross. But Jesus substitutes himself. He takes it on himself. And you know what he does? He goes to the cross for you. Now what's the text say? He's pierced for our transgressions. Right? He takes it for us. Whenever you see a cross, the phrase that should echo in your mind is, that should have been me. That should have been me. But Jesus doesn't just stop there. He's resurrected. Okay? So what he does is he defeats this stuff. He defeats it. When he is risen, not only is he made new, but we are made new too. Our sin, our guilt, our sorrows, all that stuff is gone. It's gone. And Jesus is raised and he is glorified. He is in his new body and it is defeated. It is over. And the, the text goes even further, right? Because it substitutes not just one way. He clothes us in righteousness, right? He gives us new wardrobe. He gives us a new look. Here, put that out. Right? The text says we're healed. We were broken. We were sinful. Now we're healed. We're made whole. We're made new. Peace. We're given peace. We should have had animosity with God. We don't have animosity with God anymore because He gives us something new. He pays for it. Now, this one. I'm going to explain this one. This one says son. This one says son. And uh, I'm not trying to exclude the ladies, right? But what happens is Jesus is the son of the Father. And so what he does, he bestows his sonship upon us. It's called son because it's his sonship. That what it does, you know, it makes us all sons and daughters. We get to partake in his sonship, okay? So he takes his sonship, and he gives it to us, and he bestows it upon us. And now we are children. We are with God forever. Everybody understand the substitution right now? I pray you never forget this. I pray you never forget this. And what did all these people do to deserve all this? Nothing. 
They said, okay. That was their part in the process. I said, will you put on this shirt and change shirts? And they said, okay. That's the same thing with God, I think. What can we do for God? What can we offer God? Nothing. All we do is say, okay, and then we say for the rest of our lives, thank you, thank you, thank you. We praise God all the time. Now, there's one more problem, though. There's one more problem, one more thing that we tend to do with God. See, we, we get all this substitute, right? We get to be called righteous and healed and whole and a son or a daughter of the king. We get peace. But for some reason, for some reason, some of us go back and we say, uh, you know what, I think I'm still going to live in my sin. Or I think I'm going to put my guilt back on. I think I'm going to live, I'm going to hang on to that guilt. And I know plenty of Christians who are totally saved, can totally be out of their sin and out of their guilt and not live in their sorrow anymore. And they choose to. So why Paul says, and he says to me, he says, for freedom you have been set free. Which sounds stupid at first, right? Of course, Paul, for freedom we've been set free. Until a lot of us who are free choose to go back into slavery. See, you have a choice now. This is where you do have a choice. When you get saved, it's, it's an okay kind of process. But the rest of your life, you've got to choose what shirt you live out of. You've got to choose what identity you're going to take on for yourself. Jesus has paid for it. You don't have to feel guilty about your past anymore. But I know a whole lot of people that choose to. You don't have to be sorrowful anymore. But I know a whole lot of people that choose to live out of that shirt. doesn't mean that as Christians we don't live, we don't have to live with some of the consequences of our sin. Hey, some of us really do, right? Okay, we feel it in our bodies and we feel it in the guilt that we feel, we, the broken relationships that we messed up somehow. But you today get to choose what shirt you're going to live out of. And I'm telling you that if you, if you don't choose the Jesus shirts, if you don't choose to take on what he does, you're going to choose to live in the sorrow and the guilt. Not only is that dishonoring to God who paid for you to not have to wear the shirt anymore, but it puts you in a really difficult position with God. Live out of your new calling. Live out of your new identity. Okay? Live out of your new shirt. You've been substituted for. It's been paid for. Live that way. Let's pray. <coughs> Lord, I thank you that you substituted yourself for us, that you laid down your life as a ransom for us, that you were pierced for our transgressions. Help us to live out of that calling. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.